This week on A to Z Running, runners are always talking about our workouts, good, bad, or otherwise, but do they tell us anything meaningful? We'll tackle this one. And we answer a listener question about returning from surgery as well as one about hydration before races. In the world of running, NCAA ran indoor conference championships, and we've got the highlights. Dennis Young interviewed 16 of the 26 last place finishers from the U.S. Olympic trials marathons over the years, and the stories are astonishing. And the Japanese marathon debut just got crazier. All this and more on A to Z Running. Welcome back to A to Z Running, where we're helping runners thrive with information, inspiration, and coaching services. I'm Zach, and you can learn everything you need to know about what we do at A to Z Running.com. Follow us on the places where we have the stuff that includes Instagram, Spotify, and YouTube. And interact, share the stuff that you're thinking about or the things that uh, we're thinking about that relate to you. And we would love to hear those comments uh, because it enriches what we do. Like this comment from Tammy, a listener. Uh, Tammy wrote to us, I was listening to your podcast today. I don't know which day is in reference here, but thanks, Tammy. I have been a follower for a while. I discovered your podcast because my husband has taught with Andy's dad for years. Oh, that's cool. I, I did not uh, know the connection now until I see that. Well, we followed both of your Olympic trials, Andy in 2020, Zach in 2024. That's cool. She said, uh, kind of fun to think even though we don't know you, we know someone who does. Very true. And I saw Nate Martin was your guest recently. He's a personal favorite of ours. Yes. Agreed. Both my boys ran for Spring Arbor for Coach Burke. Oh, nice. Right on. So, oh, and then you go on to say Nate's a bit of a celebrity to them. Yes. Nate Martin is a celebrity in many places in the running world, but uh, the alma mater tends to hold uh, even more high the honors of their graduates. And Nate Martin is is a true celebrity of Spring Arbor, no doubt about it. Anyway, Tammy continued, I had to share what happened today. Ah, a story. I work in Rockford. I was driving home from work. I saw a runner on the side of the road. I made sure I gave him enough room. He was waving at everyone driving by. I am almost positive it was Zach. So I was listening to your podcast while I saw Zach running. You probably think it's a weird thing to mention, but honestly, it's kind of fun and crazy at the same time. Keep up the great work. Thank you, Tammy. Um, there's a good chance it was me. Uh, not that I'm the only person in Rockford who runs, but there aren't that many people in my experience as I'm driving around the world uh, where people are running who wave at all of the cars. But I do. I actually am conducting a longitudinal experiment that I will tell you the results of my experiment years down the road when I have enough data that will show. But anyway, um, I wave at pretty much every car. It's actually kind of reflexive now. So I don't always realize that I'm waving at people. So a lot of times people will be like, oh, thanks for waving at me. And I won't have known that I did. Um, apologies for that. It's also deliberate. It's reflexive and it's deliberate. Um, because, and it's quite simply, there's a reason for this, um, because there's a human driving that car, hopefully, and if it's not a Tesla, and that human and I 
um, are passing each other. It's happening constantly without any kind of human acknowledgement. And there's two things there. One is I like to have, you know, if, if there's other humans around me in the vicinity, I'm not like a city kind of person. Cities where like everyone just puts their head down and pretends that no one else exists. That's a little dis disheartening to me and <laughs> disquieting. And you, this is coming from the highly introverted guy who much prefers to pretend that um, social norms are not necessary. Uh, and yet, all the same, um, just because I am low <laughs> threshold of interacting socially does not mean I, I, in fact, much prefer to be able to acknowledge each other and then have that be the end of it. <laughs> that's that's my my favorite. Um, uh, it sounds terrible. But anyway, but the point here is um, I do wave at all the cars and I'm very interested in whether people wave back. And you might guess that um, many don't. But what it is, is I, I also do that because it forces an extra layer of potential noticing. So people are going to drive past runners and, and cyclists on the road all day long and have this vague sense that there's something there. And that's why they get so stinking close to us and almost run us over all the time. I don't like that. So I do two things. One, I run in the middle of the lane of oncoming traffic and, you know, not when a car is about to smash into me, but, um, I, my job as a runner is to be seen by you and I will force it upon you as a driver if I must. So please notice me or, Things are going to get really awkward when we're playing chicken out there on the road. And I don't want it to be dangerous, but you need to see the pedestrians on the road. So you stop hitting them. Okay, well, point here is I do wave also, and there's layers of reasons why, and you can see that. Um, and I'm tracking it. Not all the time. The whole time I'm running, that would be insane. Um, but, uh, well, I'll tell you my strategy, and then I'll tell you one day my results of my experiment. Um I wave at on, on a given run, randomly select a stretch of the run and wave at somewhere in the vicinity of 20 to 40 cars. And I count them and I count every time someone waves back to me and every time someone does not wave or, or acknowledge, I should say, um, and pay attention to where, what kind of road I'm on, like, you know, like, is it high speed, low speed, all that kind of stuff? Whereabouts am I, you know, city, suburban, rural, all the things. And I'm collecting that information. So there you go. That's my experiment. Join me in it if you'd like. There's no reason why I'm, I should be the only one conducting it. Okay, that was more than you needed to know about Zach waving at cars. But Tammy, thanks for your comment. Everybody else, if you've got thoughts or if you have questions or if you simply like to interact with the content you see out there, we're on Instagram, we're on Spotify, we're on YouTube. Interactions are great. We love it. It's wonderful. Now, speaking of, let's get started with your questions. Hi everyone, it's Andy. I wanted to hop in to answer these listener questions. Well, it's one question from many listeners. Alicia, Summer, and others reached out and asked me about how my recovery from my hip surgeries has been. To give some of you a backstory, if you don't know, I had both my hips repaired in 2022 and they can't be repaired at the same time. So three months for one, three months for another. And I had bone shaving. So the entire femur head had to be taken down and I had the labrum repaired as well as socket reshaping. So those are the surgeries I had in 22, 2022. 
Backing up even further, I was able to manage those tears for a couple of years. I was diagnosed in 2018 and I was able to compete at my highest level. And it was through a lot of hard work and guidance from my PT, Adam, at Endurance Rehabilitation and Athletics. I was doing probably like an hour or more a day of mobilization and activation exercises in order to train. And that's not including what I had to do like at night to help me sleep because there is a lot of discomfort that I was experiencing. All that to say though, I reached my goals, I qualified for Olympic trials, I got a PR and I was able to run at the Olympic trials. So I put off that surgery and things, every time I had a setback, it would be worse. So when I got to the point where like I was not sleeping most nights, I decided like this is affecting my life too much, I need, I need to go and get the surgery done because my bone is not going to change shape itself. So I had my hips done by Dr. Weirks and I, it was very successful. He was able to get in there to shave it all down, fix it up. I immediately was able to sleep better, which was a fantastic relief. Now recovery since then, it's not simple. I think at first I thought it might be like, cause I was hitting all my milestones and I was able to do everything they expected that I'd be able to do in the protocols. However, I did, I did run a lot and um, I felt decent doing it. And so I just kind of went back to normal, about 80% of what I had done previous. I just didn't do very much of the harder stuff uh, to avoid aggravation. So things were going well for quite some time until I had, I believe this is what it stems from, tightness tightness surrounding that hip region. There's still a lot of, yeah, both tightness and scar tissue that's built up in the area. And because of that tightness and running a long tempo run, I ended up, uh, I believe, uh, straining or tearing my high hamstring groin area. And so I had this, this setback. It took me out for the entire summer. So now I'm getting back and I feel like, you know, it's almost spring now, but it's taken me all fall and all winter to kind of like start feeling normal-ish again. So all that to say, what has your, what has your recovery been like? I think that I got a little lax on maybe doing as much of that mobilization and strengthening that I had done before. I was doing some, but I was doing probably the minimum and I need to be more engaged with doing all of the mobilization and strengthening exercises and have that prioritized over my running, which is so hard to do because I felt like I had to be patient and do all the little things for so, so long. You can't stop doing the little things. So my encouragement to everyone who's going through this is to keep doing all the little things post-surgery, even years post-surgery. Like as soon as you start letting up on that stuff, I think that's when the tightness comes back in and then that causes other issues too. We have to keep listening to our bodies. So I'm very glad I got the surgeries, but I am humbled because I thought I was being so patient. I'm humbled that I need to be even more intuitive and be even more patient and do all those little things that I know I need to do. And I was doing so diligently before uh, pre-surgery. So keep mobilizing, keep strengthening, keep up the good work. 
If you have questions, if any of you guys have questions about running related things, most of the time we do something very specific to people's running journey, please reach out. Give us the context of your question. You can do that by going to questions at a to z running.com. That's an email address. So send us your message, send us your question, or anywhere that you can contact us, like through Instagram, Spotify, Facebook. Thanks, Andy, for that first question. Surprise, Andy is not with Zach, as you as you already noticed, I sure hope. But um, that was, I uh, appreciate that we could grab some of Andy's time while she's away still. Now, this next question is from Craig, and, um, and it's a good follow-up to some of the things that Craig has asked in the past. So uh, he wrote, I have heard from several runners that the body does not absorb the hydration during a hard effort, as well as in a normal state. So it does, but it doesn't do it as well. Thus, what you take may go through the digestive tract and come right back out, but not get absorbed fully. Okay, good. That's a, that's a good premise. Now, if that is the case, what's the best thing to do pre-marathon? Because if you can't take in as much while you're running, uh, what do you do? He said taking salt supplements. Uh, do you do something like that and to try to retain water better? But um, do you delay it until like the, the day before or the night before? And then he's concerned about overdoing it because... You know, if you drink too much water the night before the race and you're up all night urinating and things. Well, okay, this is an important question. Two things first, Craig. Um, primarily, we as runners should not be running at such a high effort in a marathon that it's severely reducing our body's capacity to absorb nutrition and hydration. Um, it, it is true that at an elevated state of effort, um, when the heart rate is higher, the body is going to prioritize systems. And one of the least prioritized systems in the body <laughs> when we're exerting and stressing our physiology is the digestive system. And so, yes, it's low on the chopping block and it goes fast. But we're not at such a high effort in a marathon, especially in the early stages, that that would really be significant or substantial. Or we shouldn't be, at least, which makes the case for starting easy in a marathon to ensure that is the case. Uh, but also barring with exceptions, you know, the upper echelon elites and professional runners who are in fact running fairly close to maximum aerobic potential uh, for most of the marathon, if not the whole thing. Um, that is a different scenario. And running a marathon in two hours is a different scenario than running a marathon in three hours or three and a half or four. So um, overall, it shouldn't be a major concern. Um, but it is imperative to do things prior to the race that help reduce the need for things during the race. So that's where carbo-loading came from, the whole premise of carbo-loading. We can load up our liver and our bloodstream. Well, no, the bloodstream burns too quickly. But we load up our liver to maximize stored carbohydrates, glu glucose, glycogen. Um, that's great. Uh, so you can do that in the coming days, the, the few days before the race. Um, that's always good. But the same thing is true for electrolytes and water. Um, your body can only retain so much water, period. But um, we can at least make sure that we're not in a, in a deficient state um, because, you know, the overnight fast, uh, as well as, you know, you're not drinking water while you're sleeping. Although many have over the years done strategies like we set an alarm every few hours the night before the race to like eat a snack and drink something. I would not do that. Um, instead, just make sure that you're, you're, maxing out the reasonable consumption of electrolytes and water in the two or three days before the race, and you'll be just fine. Um, 
One of the things that you know you're overdoing it, by the way, with hydration is if you're urinating frequently, like the day before the race, and it's just clear the whole time, that's too much. Um, you need more electrolytes or less water or both. So that's uh, that's the way we think about it. Craig, always appreciate the questions. This is a great one to be thinking about as many are starting to get ready for racing season in the spring, uh, which tends to be a, a high saturation of events for people. So thanks again. As Andy said, ask your questions. Send us an email at questions at agencyrunning.com. Now let's talk about something else. There's a bit of a, a conceptual battle going on between Andy and Zach on the podcast, if you haven't noticed, which is what do we call the main topic section of the podcast? Um, and we've just, we've just, you know, it's not really a big deal, so we just don't really say much about it. But um, at times I have called it something helpful, but that obviously uh, is slightly ironic because the intent of everything we say in the podcast is that it's supposed to be helpful. So all the rest of it would theoretically not be as helpful if I'm calling this anyway. So maybe I'll just call it something else and we'll see how that rings true. Or we could just say the main topic, whatever the case may be. That's what we're doing right now. So we titled this podcast episode um, in order to make you wonder what we were going to do about this topic. Um, as such, the title workouts don't mean a thing is only slightly misleading, <laughs> but uh, but let me explain. Don't just shut me off because you're like Zach, you clickbaited me um, because I don't I don't try to clickbait. Um, I, I think that that's mostly just annoying. But as it were, um, this topic is actually one of distinct interest in running because of what we do and how we think about the things as we're doing them. So here's what it is. We're talking about when I say workouts, by the way, right now, I'm really talking about like harder effort days. Um, but you could constitute anything, any, any time kind of exertion as a workout. And technically speaking, that would still apply to what I'm going to say here. So define it how you will, but we're talking about days when you go out and you do some kind of structured activity to train your body. Um, all right. That said, Everyone is always saying things like this is what spawned this. Um, well, in particular, it was Nico Young uh, before setting the NCAA collegiate 5,000 meter record. It was like maybe two weeks before that or something. He posted this workout on Strava, I think it was, because um, everyone posts everything on Strava. And it was pretty it was pretty impressive, like what he did in the workout. Now, remember, it's Strava, so everything is not true <laughs> in some sense. Like the posts, the description, the, the someone's fudging the data whatever the case may be, assume everything is tainted in some way, just because it could be. No, it's, that's, that's the longstanding joke of Strava, right? But it still was an impressive workout. And everyone's saying he must be capable of X or Y in a race. Um, and if you know anything about Nico Young over the years, he's, uh, is he a senior now? He's, he's an upperclassman at Northern Arizona University out standing high schooler, um, among the best ever, um, incredible collegian, and yet has in many people's eyes, not quite risen to the promise that he had presented. And now suddenly things are happening that more and more people are becoming believers and saying, yeah, he's actually there. He's doing it. So he set the collegiate record in the 5,000 meter indoors, for example, which was just incredible. Um, his performance was well beyond the previous record, which had just been set uh, like a month and a half before. So he is great. 
But Nico Young routinely throughout the last few years has posted some insane training endeavors, workouts, um, and then the, the racing didn't quite rise to the thing. Now, I'm not picking on Nico Young because it happens to be the case that that is true for everybody. So the question here, not a question, the statement here is everyone's always reading too much into workouts and what they mean about fitness or potential for races. Um, that That is simply a thing that happens. Whether we should or shouldn't read anything into it. That's not what I'm trying to address yet, but we're certainly reading too much into it at times. Um, also, we've got the two sides of it. You know, when we're reading things into workouts, we're reading either we're getting too excited about good workouts or we're getting too disappointed from bad workouts. And we're like going to these extremes. If the workout met expectations and beyond, I am thinking that the world is mine. And if the workout um, was beneath expectations, what's the, what's the phrase for that, did not meet, then I am despondent beyond all belief. So those things are, neither of them are accurate or good. Um, we're going to talk about that too. And then also we did talk about not terribly long ago, this idea of bad workouts in general, and how that's a, that's a fairly toxic mindset for runners thinking about, you know, evaluating whether a thing that I just did, an effort that I just gave was bad or good, um, mostly because of the way we evaluate it. Not that it, we can't evaluate things that we're doing, because in fact we should. We should be astute and and deliberate in the things we do. But if you wanted to pursue more about that topic specifically, whether our efforts can be bad or good, um, that's a previous conversation. You're welcome to jump in and find that. So here's what I want to do. Let, first, let's just talk about what are people doing. Um, with this mindset and what what ends up happening as a result of that. So go through some of these examples and then I'm going to get to kind of the point and what I think is the mindset that we ought to pursue. Telling you, of course, anytime we do a topic like this, we're telling you what you think, we think you should think. And that's not really good, you know, best advice. We really are trying to set the tone of there are things to know about these things and there are decisions we are making and what are the best decisions to make here's what we think is advisable and go with it where you will now the first is the too excited about good workouts piece so that's the like wow i just did this amazing thing look at this amazing thing i just did like all of that that's what strava is right strava is a constant one of these two binaries look at this amazing thing i just did and then we always try to say it in like semi-humble ways but i really hope people notice <laughs> or <laughs> Uh, look at this thing I just did um, and here's why it was so bad and we explain it away. Okay, so that's, that is, I think I just summarized what social media are in a nutshell. But in this particular instance, um, here's what we do with this thinking. We have this good workout, so to speak. We feel really excited about it, which is great. There's, there's no harm in that. It's wonderful. And we should feel validated in the work we're doing when it uh, produces the results that impress us. Uh, but we start to go down unhelpful roads with it. And one of them is, I wonder what I could do in a race now as a result of that. Maybe I should change my goals. So I had this goal. I just saw this workout and I'm like, oh, maybe I should adjust my goals. And now I'm going to try to do this instead. Okay. That's one. Let's, we'll talk about why that's a problem. Maybe I should be running faster in training. I just did this workout. It just, you know, things are really clicking right now. I should, I should improve my 
running paces or my next workout. I should, I should do that just as fast, or I'm going to now, whenever I do this type of workout, this is my new benchmark or barometer for, you know, I will try to be near that again. Okay. All of those things are unhelpful. And in some instances may in fact be even more than unhelpful, but entirely counterproductive. So here's why. Um, should I change my goals as a result of a single workout? Never. Under no circumstances should I ever change my goals as the result of a single workout. Um, whatever the workout creates a pattern. Well, we'll talk about that in a little bit. But um, the idea of my goals being based on results of training is a misnomer in the sense that my goals should not be contingent upon what happens prior to the day when I'm ready to try to achieve those goals, right? And now everyone's going to say, well, the goals are predictive. You're not trying to make the goal based on like, what could I do today in training? But what do I think I should be able to do in a month from now? That, But that's also an impossible task because we don't know what's going to happen over the course of that month in terms of training progression. So instead, we highly encourage people to be thinking about that differently in terms of like the goals and what informs them. We'll come, we'll come back to some of that here in a bit. But then those other two, should I adjust what I'm doing in training as a result? Of, well, if you're doing things like running certain paces deliberately in workouts, then you're already kind of down a path that is is risky and or counterproductive even. Um, so, the, you know, the mindset that we're always talking about, and you know this, no surprise here, and I'm not trying to patronize anyone by saying the same thing over and over, but that's kind of what happens, you know, when you when you share your ideas, you tend to share the same ideas over and over. But point is your training impetus or prescription should be what I need to get from this workout, not what I want to see as a, a, a in this workout um, in terms of results. So as, as I think about it, should I adjust my expectations for my next workout based on my previous workout or um, change the bar, you know, the, the bar is moving. Well, we should expect progress. Certainly that's true. But progress is never linear for runners. Uh, if it is, it's rare. It's, it is often linear, but it, but it's rarely um, consistently linear. And so instead we have to assume there's going to be an ebb and flow and up and down because that's in fact, just how the body adapts and functions. So we, we don't mind that. We should also account for their everything else that's involved in what makes me have a better day today than other days and not create expectation around an anomalous thing or create expectation around um, today was good, another day should be good like it, and instead think a little bit differently about it, which we'll, we'll get to the little bit differently at the end. Okay, so that's, that's the one. Um, now the second one, too disappointed from bad workouts. Um, so this, I, in a similar sense, obviously this is the answers here are going to be the same, but the, the thinking is a little bit different here. And so I have this bad workout and I'm always trying to think of, well, why was this a bad workout and what went wrong and what should I do differently? Those are not bad reflections. Like the thing of optimizing. So I have the best possible day as often as I'm able is great, but I should not be trying to optimize based on number or data resulting from the efforts I give in a workout. Instead, I should be trying to optimize based on 
how I'm feeling and how I feel when I'm exerting various degrees because that's the thing that matters. And so when I say I had a bad workout, constitutionally, I should only really be evaluating whether or not if I felt worse than I should and for a given amount of exertion, that's a question of adjustment. Um, so if I'm if I'm running very, very easy. And I know this is exertionally, this is very, very easy. And yet things aren't feeling like they have been or they you normally do when I'm running that exertionally. I should wonder about that and try to figure out a, a solution. But it should not have anything to do with the pace or with um, those kinds of outcomes. And so that's the, I'm disappointed for the wrong reasons, but I really shouldn't be disappointed at all because I should just be thinking about what is success in this moment and what does it take to achieve that and results don't really matter in most senses we'll get to that too we'll explain that more in summary so um too much is staked on too small a sample size very often as well for runners the idea that a single workout tells me something meaningful um, is just absurd a pattern certainly tell can tell me something meaningful i mentioned i'd come back to this um it's a good bellwether to see like over the course of weeks how things are trajectory wise and where they are on average. Those are good things to think about to just get a sense of kind of homeostasis, um, which as you know, Brad Stolberg does not like that word because we read his book and that's what he said. But um, homeostasis is, is a helpful sense of kind of what I should expect from a normal, but not because I need everything to be that as much as um, when things are too far outside that, anomalies then raise questions. Um, but so we need a pattern over time, but it's still, that's still not the point though. The point is not whether I'm having certain results and seeing a pattern of those certain results. Um, because once again, we're creating expectation then around the wrong thing, expectation around results in training, which, um, if anything, the only thing that should create a sense of expectation for us are the races so I do the race and then I kind of know where I'm at. Um, and in that sense, there's so many confounding factors that go into why training and racing are just completely different experiences that really we should, we should just not be trying to, we shouldn't be trying to gain data from training at all. Um, we should only try to gain meaningful data from racing in that performance sense, if, if possible. Um, now, but we can't, what if we can't race very often? Like, what if I can't do that? I, I, most of the time runners run only a few races in a season at most, and many only ever do the one race that they're training for. Um, if that's fine, if I need to know things, if my mindset is I need to know where I'm at, or I want to know something more here, um, then I, I should find an opportunity in a race to, that's a good checkpoint. Uh, benchmark, but but it is still not the point because I'm in the midst of preparation, and arguably racing when I'm not ready for a race, when I haven't prepared to the extent that race preparation preparedness is, that's just not generally not good information either. <laughs> if you train the way that we advise, which is periodical, periodized training, um, that's a, one of the more common approaches. Not not everyone recommends it, but um, if you do that, then you're really not race ready at certain stages. You're really only race ready in the later stages of the training because you're not doing the things that you should be doing uh, most of the time to be primed for a race. And that's deliberate. But 
as it were, um, there is a time when racing is appropriate. And still, generally, we approach with caution. We don't want to be going, you know, full out efforts too often as a runner. But we can certainly race more during the latter stages of training and preparation and get in information from that. Okay, so that's that's the um, now here's let's talk about a few examples of where this happens in some other contexts. So a lot of times in team environments, talking high school and college especially, um, coaches will use workout results to determine training and racing groups, especially teams that have larger numbers. And that's this is a really dangerous practice for the long-term success of your runners. And here's why. One, because it just turns practice into a competition. And, and you, you see that. And some coaches actually want that. That's terrible. You don't want that. It's bad for your runners. It's bad for your program. Um, yes, it's true that the runners who can survive it may, in fact, come out highly successful for short periods of time. Still bad long-term for them, but also bad for the whole team, the whole program and, in general. And, and, and there's more. Uh, I'm not trying to accuse some coach of, like, terrible things. This is a very common thing. But so we'll do things like this. Um, I've got a week of good training. So what does that mean? It means that I'm bumped up to the next training group or um, in the next race, coach is going to have me run with this other pack of guys. Or how about I have a week of bad training and coach is saying, eh, we need to make some adjustments because this other guy's having a better week than you. And so he's going to, we're going to bump him up or we're going to swap you out in the varsity racing, all that kind of stuff, right? Um, in all of those situations, the incentives are completely backwards because now every runner has some level of incentive to perform as well as possible in the week of training to then be in the potential positioning or environment for the race or the next week of training um, to try to be as, as you know they're trying to be as good as they can right but that means that now we're treating our practice sessions like competitions i mentioned that already and in so doing we're totally flattening ourselves there's no way that that's a sustainable environment now it's true for younger people they can actually handle and adapt more quickly to more frequent hard efforts but that doesn't mean that it's good for them <laughs> just because they can handle it many have tried those approaches and in all instances they have found there is casualty and there are casualties and and i don't think that that's the right approach for team sports <laughs> but uh, all told um it also then creates that's one factor this competitiveness from the incentives but also it creates this success and failure mindset in your runners that's too microscopic they are looking at each individual moment and defining whether they are successful or not by that moment and that's not the way physiology works. We say this so often on the show. Physiology is not acute moments in time. It's progress over time. And you don't want your athletes looking at today's workout and saying, oh, man, I'm just not I'm not there. I'm not I'm not doing the stuff. I'm uh, having a bad I'm doing the bad. I'm not you know, all of those things are bad. But in the exact opposite, you still don't want your athletes saying, I'm hitting that. I hit that workout and I'm like the cream of the crop. I'm it's go time. You want them to have confidence, but you need to teach your athletes to have confidence because of the right things. Those are the wrong things to give you confidence. Okay. It's all bad <laughs> over time, over a long time. All right. Well, that's one thing. Now, um, 
the other side of this that we're talking about racing, but then at the same token, what about adjusting things like, okay, here's the pace that I'm in, I want this group of runners to run for this workout. And then depending on how it goes, you're either doing that again, next, next workout, or I'm going to adjust you into a different pace group. And this little, like Mike, um, what's that called? Micro manipulation. Uh, these little itty bitty manipulations that coaches are doing, that is super ineffective for, for adaptations and physiology. Um, that's not what optimization is. Optimization is when you get the exact right amount of effort each time you go out there to then achieve maximal adaptation. And that's how you optimize. But then what the coach is doing is prescribing based off of too few datum, too few points of datum and prescribing something that then may or may not be the best thing and now gives you another point of datum that is potentially unhelpful and inaccurate and so we we just can't we we can't be we can't manipulate at that level if we're really aspiring toward um, sustained long-term pro progress for our athletes. So I, I, I wanted to give the coach team examples because those are where we see a lot of these bad habits are formed out of tradition or necessity. Like I have to find a way to organize somehow. And, and that is a way that gives me information to use to organize. Um, I think we could do that in better ways um, just by, by teaching our athletes exertional effort-based mindsets and then learning how to structure athletes based off of some of those components um and the, as, as you know lydiard always said if you got four guys running together at least three of them are running the wrong effort <laughs> and that's true with your young kids too so that big pack of runners which just looks great in training is like look at all those big packs of runners learning to run as a team in a pack um there is a place for that there's definitely a place for that there's certain kinds of workouts when that is a wonderful thing to do most of the time the coaches are doing it it means that a large percentage of those runners in that pack are exerting the wrong amount to optimize their progression. Okay. That's not the only goal of training though. I understand that. And so that's, I'm not saying never do that. I'm saying that if that's the goal, it's not doing it. Okay. Last points then core principles of all of this. What is the workout for? We need to always know the intention of our efforts so that we can achieve that intention and of course the fundamental thing is the point of training is to build fitness is to grow towards some end and pro progress and if we are doing that deliberately in the workouts um, we don't need to know outcomes to achieve that goal and more to the fact outcomes confound our efforts to achieve that goal and so we need to be thinking about what am I doing this workout for today? And how? what's the best way to achieve that? And go out and do that. Now, a quick note from Lydiard. Um, in one of his particular books, the Running with Lydiard book, uh, he wrote um, about his, his constant, uh, he's got a few of them, but one of his like lines is never race your training. Um, well, one of the questions there is, well, if I never, if I never r train in that degree of exertion, does that, doesn't that leave me ill-prepared for the race? Because now I'm not really ready to give a full effort on race day because I haven't been doing it in training. Um, and that's where I said earlier, we should be racing more if we need that level of preparation because we should do that in races. Um, a workout is just simply never, uh, what's the word, a sim simulacrum of a race. It's just not. 
there's too many other things involved in the experience that make it what it is race day. So I should find races to prepare me for being race ready. And if I can't find races, then I have to try as best I can um, to do something that replicates a race experience. And, but yet still, those are different than training runs. They're not the same thing as a training run. Um, and so you could, you could call it whatever. There's lots of names for them, but that's a different kind of thing. And only in the late stages of training, when you're actually preparing for a goal race. Um, if you're racing middle of your, your training cycle or even later than that still, but that's not your goal race, you don't need to be race ready for a race that isn't the focal point of the training season because you can only be race ready for so long, so many times in a period of time. So let's not overdo that. Um, and I should say, uh, there's, there's this, I said it earlier, this side of like, I'm either wanting to kind of reinforce my, um, uh, ego, but I don't mean this in like a, a bad sense, not a judgmental sense, but I'm always trying to reinforce my ego by, um, sharing the things that I did in training and that I feel really good about. And then at the same token, always trying to explain away the things I didn't. Um, but, but the workout itself really does neither of those. It does not prove something about me as a, a runner and it does not, um, indicate some negative thing about me in isolation. And so that kind of thinking tends to create those false expectations of its own, just in how I'm thinking about how others are going to see the thing when I share it. I am not going to go down the Strava rabbit hole right now. Maybe there's more content coming on that with some studies attached soon. We'll see. All right. And then the last note here. Um, what, so what do we do? What, how does this look, Zach? Come on, tell us that, what's the point. Um, we need to stop evaluating success by our training outcomes. Um, instead, we need to evaluate success by the things we're doing exertionally, the efforts we're giving, and um, quantifying and qualifying those efforts by what they ought to be to, to move us forward. And so that's based on two things, always based on two things. One, what is it that I'm trying to achieve? So there's a sense of goal there. And two, what is it that I actually need right now? And what can I then because because you can't I can't adapt effectively if I'm doing too much or too little for what I need right now. So I create a sense of where am I right now and what do I need to move myself forward? And then and this is not a Zach original. This is not an A to Z running thing. I've, I've said this many times, but I don't often enough tell you our sources on these things uh, because it probably would annoy you for me to just say it every single time. But but this one in particular probably originated with Lydiard if, if we were to trace it all the way back to the beginning. Um, but just in principle, that constant refrain that um, we need to evaluate, there's a, there's a kind of like general sense of what's good and that I need to know what I need right now that may or may not be exactly that. And the example that I'll always go back to, and I just I just re-encountered it, which is why I'm remembering it right now. But Lydiard writes in, in one of his books that he's got this like template for kind of generically what a full week looks like in terms of general conditioning that any distance runner ought to do. He talks about running, um, you do like 10 miles one day, 14 miles another day, 10 miles... 18 miles, 10 miles, 22 miles, you know, things like that. Right. And so, and then he, he says, but you should also do it with time first. His whole point though is, so I tell the runners, you need three long runs, 
And then the shorter runs in between those long runs are going to be faster efforts, higher efforts. Okay. But you need to decide what a long run means for you. It's not the same length for everyone all the time or for you in every stage of preparation. Um, you need to decide what a long run means and you need to decide whether you can handle all of that yet. And if not, you're adjusting based on that. And so his whole recommendation is here's a good thing to do, but don't do it exactly like what I just said. Instead, figure it out for yourself. That's important. That's important. So, all right, that's, uh, there's, there's a great, by the way, a great little anecdote. I'll end with this. Um, Lydiard writes about Ron Clark in the 1960s. And it's just awesome to see Lydiard write about this, this athlete because he says, okay, Ron Clark, in his opinion, was the greatest runner on the planet. And in fact, Lydiard at one point claimed that Ron Clark was the best runner in, in all of history. Um, and this was a claim made like in the 90s. And so he's including a, a lot more runners after Ron Clark um, in that statement. Now, of course, you could argue that not in, he's not in the least the greatest runner, especially with what runners are doing these days. But Lydiard would say things like, well, the technology was different back then. Shoes were different back then. Um, we've optimized so many things that if Ron Clark had access to that. Yeah, okay. All right. I'm not going to try to argue that. Point is, Lydiard would say that. But then he would go on to say, and yet Clark routinely lost major races, regularly lost the big races. And he said it's because he just he's he was bad at finding the right balance and getting the efforts right all throughout the different phases of training and the, the combinations of things right. And so yet, as it goes, you can be outstanding. Ron Clark would run a world record and then uh, a month later place terribly in the world championships or Olympics at the time. And so it, it is it is true. You can have this shining moment at certain times, anomalous times in training, but that doesn't really mean much by itself. We need to instead evaluate success by the things that move us forward and then target our expectations around how to achieve that success, not around the outcomes. There you go. Hopefully that was something helpful. And with that, we can now get on to the world of running. All right. There's a little bit of a, a calm before the storm kind of moment right now in the um, professional running scene. Uh, there's not a lot going on in terms of major road races. Uh, there, there's some occasional here and there, but as the Olympics get closer, those major road races see a little bit different levels of competition. But for now, there's still some, some things happening. And on the track, we have the World Championships indoor track in Scotland next weekend. So tune your TVs if you could, which you can't. So don't. But if, if you were able to watch this, I think there's some platform that's streaming that NBC owns because that's NBC owns all this stuff. But um, if you can watch it, it's going to be exciting. Indoor, indoor nationals is always... Uh, it's a very fast paced thing. Races are shorter. The track is smaller. So you just see people more and you see them closer and it's, it's kind of fun. Okay. So that's coming as a result. There's not as many other things happening, but there's still some, including the collegiate scene, which is hard at work in the postseason. NCAA conference action was all weekend. Um, and we got some interesting, like some 
some cool moments and some legacy achievements that are predictable, you could say. Uh, for instance, Parker Valby won the 3,000 meters at the SECs. No surprise there. Um, but she did it in the number five NCAA time all time. And you might likely know that for Parker Valby, the SEC championships is not the most important race of the year. So it, you, you wonder how much she exerted in that given race and performed such an, an impressive result at that. 8.42 for her 3,000 winning SECs. The NCAA champ Michaela Rose in the 800 ran the number two NCAA 800-meter time. She runs for LSU, I believe. Um, for some reason, I don't have that written here. But uh, she ran 159.25, which marks number two ever in the indoors in the NCAA. And guess who's number one? A thing mo. And Michaela Rose, she's on track to uh, continue progressing in the the world-class scene in the 800. Uh, sub two minutes for women in the 800 and indoors is outstanding. All right, now a couple uh, notable legacy things here. Arkansas men and women win SECs pretty much every time in indoors, and they just won their fifth straight double sweep. Men and women both won. That's the 11th in program history. That's pretty impressive. NAU similarly sweeped the big sky for the fourth year in a row, men and women. The Texas women have won nine of the 10 last Big 12 indoor championships, and Princeton's men just took their ninth straight Ivy League indoor championship title. So if you're thinking about, okay, track is always fascinating, uh, but the team scene of the collegiate aspect is always a lot of fun. Um, you'll get a program like Texas that wins races um, largely on the sprints and the and the and the jumps. Um, not that Texas doesn't have a, a well-rounded team, but you get a program like that. They're winning. They're winning the indoor championships largely on the sprints and the jumps. Um, and that, and yet NAU largely wins on the distance runners. And so like you get, you, you just, depending on how the team's strengths and weaknesses go, you get some really interesting things. I think it's just lots of fun, fascinating stuff. Okay. Number two, this is crazy. Dennis Young, a journalist in some capacity, um, or at least in this instance, wrote an article for, um, I, for some reason, I don't have the source written here, uh, wrote an article after doing one of the most interesting things that I've seen from running journalists. He interviewed as many of the U.S. Olympic Trials Marathon losers as possible. I'm not meaning that in a pejorative sense. Literally, the people who finished last place. And he's trying to track them all down. There's 26 instances. So apparently there have been 26 U.S. Olympic trials marathons, including if you combine men and women. Um, the men started in, I don't know exactly what year. The women started in 1984. So there's a few more men's than women's. But um, as it goes, he tracked down 16 of them, including the most recent ones in the 2024 trials. And he's got the stories. I tell you what, this stuff is worth reading. It's fascinating. Cautionary note, Den Dennis Young writes a little bit more crassly than I would recommend people read generally. So read at your own risk. But point is, it's it's interesting stuff. Okay. Um, here, here we go. I wanted to share a few notable things here. In particular, um, by the way, he did mention the worst Olympic trials was the first one, uh, which 
was held in Colorado at 7,500 feet of elevation. You can imagine that that was a terrible experience for the runners. So I don't know why they did that, but that was bad. Um, Aside from that event, which is the slowest Olympic trials ever, Chris Barnacle, who finished in last place in the 2016 Olympic trials in Los Angeles, he ran the slowest time ever, men or women, um, in the Olympic trials, if you accept that elevation one. And yet, his comment, um, he says, if anything, what I regret, this is a quote from Barnacle, if I, what I regret from my running career are the times that I did drop out of races, not when he finished in it and it was bad. And so his whole mindset is like, I'm going to finish the thing. But he knew going into the race in 2016 that it was not going to be a, a wonderful experience. And here's part of the reason why he knew this. The dude was not like out, out there running high-level races at that point in time. He qualified for the 2016 Olympic trials with a half marathon in 2013, three years before. And so if that's that was the peak of his performance prior to the event, you can imagine there's a lot of time in between those two and things can go wrong. And lots of things were going wrong for Barnacle. And so he ran the race. He felt awful and had a rough go. But uh, his whole thing was, but I'm still going to finish it. I'm still going to finish it. And he did in that. Um, now, also in 2016, a crazy story. Joanna Zieger, Zeiger, um, jo- Joanna Zeiger lost for the women's race, um, although she still finished 22 minutes ahead of Barnacle's time. Um, yeah, yeah, that was a tough one. But uh, so Zeiger had an insane bicycle accident years before. I I don't remember exactly what year it was. Don't have it in front of me. But um, she was in fact a world-class athlete in a number of things. Her first Olympic trials was actually in 1988 in swimming the summer after she graduated from high school. So she's she's done it all. She was a world-class triathlete, had this massive bicycle accident, just broke a whole bunch of stuff and messed up her ribs such to the degree that she was in in and out of surgeries, constantly dealing with chronic pain, like all this stuff, right? So she still decides, well, I can't ride. She's, she's done cycling, but, but I can still run. Despite all that, she was still going to run and qualified for the Olympic trials twice in the marathon. And in 2016, ends up finishing last place. In fact, she had a surgery in, in before the 2016 trials that removed a small bone from um, like under her sternum and it grew back. And so they had to remove it again. And yet it was causing her tons and tons of pain. Yet she had to run the Olympic trials with that pain and um, among many other things. And still just like this, this woman's capacity to endure pain must be one of a kind still goes out, runs the entire 26 miles. Yes. She finished in last place. Yes, she was six miles behind the winner. Um, she actually got in the picture because of just how, how this works. Um, as Amy Craig was crossing the finish line, winning the Olympic trials in 2016, Joanna Zeiger was right there in the background starting her last lap of the course with six miles to go. Um, just crazy, crazy stories here, right? How about Leah Fink or Fink? Um, Fink ran the first women's marathon trials in 1984. 
while she was six months pregnant. And this is not a terribly uncommon story because you might, as you might guess, not every pregnancy is, is planned, but at the same time as well, uh, there's just, there's a lot of life going on and you can qualify for these events. And then a lot of time can go by before the event and, and you're, you're living your life. You're not stopping everything for, I mean, some people do, but um, plenty of people don't. Case in point, Fink ran the in 1984 trial, six months pregnant with the, the runner who she spent most of the race with was also six months pregnant or thereabouts. And so there you have it. It's really just a thing that happens. Uh, Fink in particular, she's got this quote. I love this. When I finished, they took me to the medical tent and found the baby's heartbeat and put it on the loudspeaker so everyone could hear because everybody knew, right? Everyone knew she was pregnant. They were cheering her on and just like, you know, go go out and get it. You're doing something crazy and impressive and, and kind of scary and all of that, right? And so they, <laughs> okay, you know, let's let's check to make sure all is well. And they put it on the loudspeaker. Speaker. Yeah, she lost the race. It's true. Um, the woman she was running with, by the way, I don't have her name for some reason, but um, who was also pregnant, didn't end up finishing. And so um, she did not get a result because she was she didn't make the cutoff, in fact, is what it was. So Fink, despite being six months pregnant, also still made the cutoff to finish the race, which is <laughs> add another layer of impressive. She does say at one point in the interview, she says, uh, you know, I can get down and scrub floors while I'm six months pregnant. I can also run a marathon. Like it's, <laughs> these are just, you're living life, even if you're pregnant. Um, and she mentioned that yes, having a baby is, um, much harder than giving birth. Much, giving birth is much harder than running a marathon or something like that. So quick note, she also then went on to finish eighth at the Boston marathon in 1987. So she's got some accolades too. Uh, went on to have uh, quite a career in marathoning. Um, now let's talk about the one in most recently in 19 and 2024 in Orlando. Um, you may know Megan Crifton was uh, running the, the most recent trials seven months pregnant or thereabouts and, um, and drew some attention. People were supporting her, cheering her on and, uh, but she did not end up finishing the race. Um, she dropped out somewhere around mile 18. And so, you know, props to her for going out and just having the experience. How cool. Um, and, and more still, those are not the only ones. Now let's, let's jump over to a different scenario here because, um, young in his article was like, okay, so sometimes you've got people who like were injured and knew it. And that's why, um, there's a lot of stories about that. Uh, but you've also got situations like Dan Brown, one of the most decorated runners ever to lose a race. Dan Brown was a two-time Olympian in the same Olympic year, qualified and ran the 10,000 meters and the marathon in the same Olympic year. And then yet in 2012, uh, finished last in the men's race and did finish the race, did not drop out. Now, unfortunately, we don't know the full story because Dan Brown, when asked by Young, um, responded saying, well, yeah, there's quite the story there, but I might be writing it in a book someday. And so I'm not going to tell you yet. Like, all right, that's fair enough. Fair enough. I hope that you do write it in a book because I want to read it. Um, last one here to share. Matt Rand, who finished last place in Orlando, 2024. And I just love this quote. Um, this is kind of how we just wrap, how Young wrapped up the article. Rand said, I'm glad that I chose 40 minutes of pain over a lifetime of regret. So that, you know, why do you do it? Why do these runners do it? Knowing that I'm going to suffer, knowing that this is not 
the best look for me. Like I knew I could do better, but this is what I had, or I'm injured and I know that this might be furthering my injury or, you know, all the reasons, right? All the things involved in that. Why do we still finish the race? And for some it's, it's just, well, because that's what I do. I finish things and I'm not going to step off of it for some. It's like, well, I'm here. I, you know, I traveled all this way. I, I wanted to have the experience. I'm going to close it out. And as you see here in many instances, I don't want to regret. I don't want to make the choice to step off and then wish I hadn't. So there you go. I guess my last comment and kind of a summarizing reflection is, yes, it is true. Someone always finishes last in the race. And there is as much of a story in that as there is in the person who finishes first. And I'm always glad for opportunities to be able to capture the stories that pervade, pervade, pervade the entire experience. All right. So there you go. Now I've got one other thing here to share. Actually, it's a couple of other things that kind of go together. Uh, first in, uh, from Japan running news as reported, uh, by Brett Larner, Kyoto Hirabayashi won the Osaka marathon in his debut at 21 years of age. He actually just turned 21 years of age. He is in the university system and set a new Japanese collegiate record in the marathon, which means a whole lot more in Japan than it does in the U.S. Because in the U.S., colleges in general don't run marathons. They just don't ever do marathoning in college. But in Japan, it's it's a big deal, um, even at those ages. He ran 206.19 in his first marathon. This is now the fastest debut by a Japanese runner and one of the fastest debuts, period, on the planet. Crazy. Hirabayashi making waves. He also beat Uganda's Steven Kissa, who is a top five finisher in the world championships in the marathon. And so beat him by four seconds. It was a close race. But Hirabayashi, mad props to just an impressive thing. And then just to close it all out, in in route and en route to his impressive victory, um, led three other Japanese men to under 207 performances as well. Not all of them for the first time, but four Japanese men in one race under 207. Whoa, that's something. Last thing, Cam Myers, that crazy fast teenager from Australia, just ran crazy fast again. And why it's especially uh, impressive news, not only did he beat Jake Whiteman, who is a world champion, Myler, 1,500-meter uh, runner, but also he ran the fastest 1,500-meter time on Australian soil by an Australian. A little bit of a, we got to kind of weave through some things there, do some backbending to kind of find that one. But that's crazy because Australia has a long standing history of excellent distance running and especially great milers as well. And yet, Cam Myers at 17 years, is he still 17? Either way, he's a teenager. Cam Myers just ran an impressive 333, very nearly a new personal best. So that's that's impressive. All right. Well, we've got lots of things that we're going to be talking about next week when we're sharing the results of the World Championships indoor track with you. Always an exciting time and more. So make sure you tune in and ask your questions that are on your mind so that we can keep our conversation focused on the things that matter most to you. Email us your questions by sending to questions at a to z running dot com. Thanks again for joining and we will talk to you next week.